you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. It is wonderful to see you all this morning. If we have not had the chance to meet, my name is Philip. I am one of the elders uh, here, and it's uh, my joy and my privilege and my pleasure to be in front of you guys this morning to be able to share uh, uh, in place of JP this morning. Um, But one way uh, I don't believe I have ever grown up from my childhood is in my love for cereal. I love cereal. Um, I know some of you are thinking to yourself, uh, you like cereal, but you eat like fiber oats or Special K or Raisin Bran. That's not what I'm talking about, right? When I'm talking about cereal, I'm talking about Cocoa Puffs and Lucky Charms and Go-Go Krispies and Captain Crunch, right? The stuff that's full of sugar and has like zero nutritional value. That's, that's my heart. So I'm good. There's some, there's some enthusiasm for that this morning. I love it. Um, and I'm, sure I'm a little ashamed of it. Uh, my wife is always um, low-key judging me a little bit. She's like, that's just a bowl of sugar. Why are you eating that? And so I, I, tr- I try to eat it a little, little less conspicuously. I try to not to be on her radar as much. Um, about a year ago, I made this big push. I was like, I'm going to start eating healthier. Because I would come home from work, and I'd be starving, and I would just start eating a bunch of stuff. Um, just a bunch of junk food. And so I said, you know what? Um, every day when I come home, I'm just going to have this big bowl of salad. And I'm going to cut up all these apples and strawberries and blueberries and throw them in there. And I'm going to fill up on that first thing. And my wife was like, wow, I'm so proud of you. And then there was this one day I came home before she was home, before the kids were home. And I was getting ready to make my salad. And I saw that she bought this gigantic box of fruity pebbles for the kids. And I thought... It's got the word fruit in it, right? So I ate three bowls, and I was on my way to get my fourth bowl, and I was like, I feel so sick right now. I couldn't eat anymore. And then she comes home, and she's like, I'm starving. What are we going to eat for for dinner? And I'm like, oh, dinner. So I told her, I was like, you know, I'm just going to stick with like a really small bowl of salad. And she's like, wow. I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. And then a week later, I stepped on the scale, and I was like, oh, no, (laughs) not so much. Now, we might chuckle, right? Uh, We all kind of have, like, little habits that we might joke joke or chuckle about, about how we we don't do a good job at it, right? Maybe it's losing weight. Maybe, you know, we've decided, oh, I want to read more. Maybe you want to watch less TV, exercise more. Uh, and, and, And sometimes we want to change a habit, but our effort, efforts are entirely superficial, right? A superficial efforts will only produce superficial results, right? And maybe, you know, you buy some great running shoes and you buy some good shorts and a, and a good top for running, but it doesn't make you a runner, 
right? Maybe you buy all this good exercise gear and you're going to start going to the gym. That doesn't, that doesn't make you all of a sudden fit. I, I remember this, um, you know, I used to go to the gym, you know, very, very, very regularly. And every year I noticed there's this big, you know, uh, growth in attendance in the gym around January. And then it kind of like fizzle out as the year go- goes on. And I remember there's this one gentleman I met and he's like, I'm just here because my wife is making me be here. I will never forget the day that I saw that man asleep on the ab machine. <laughs> just totally passed out, right? But you might have a, a stack of books this high of all the things you're going to read this summer, but that doesn't all of a sudden make you smarter or make you a reader. Um, the reality is, uh, the most habits of discipline, the, the quality of your efforts will produce the quality of the results you want. The, the same is true about the quality of our faith. There are these many uh, disciplines and habits that we have that we, we do as Christians to kind of build a deeper faith, to develop and deepen our faith, right? But many of us, or many times, we fail in that because our efforts are surface level, right? They lack this, this deeper level of disciplines, right? We might have a shallow prayer life, a prayer life that's just only publicly seen. We might have a very weak study of Scripture, Maybe you just look at the verse of the day and, and, and call it good and, and do nothing more with that, right? Um, there might be a very limited or very safe level of generosity where you don't actually feel like you're having to trust God with anything. If our efforts to deepen our faith are minimal or superficial, we should expect our results to be as well. Right? I, I want to explore today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, and we're, you can turn there now if you have your, if your Bibles. I won't have the full passage on the screen here, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15, and we are continuing our series, the, the Summer on the Mount. And today's title of the sermon is, How to Not Be a Christian. And we're going to look at a few very pointed criticisms that, Je- criticisms that Jesus offered surrounding a couple of these religious habits or practices um, that we still have today. And I want to explore how that teaches us how not to be a Christian and to glean a little bit about how to live in faith, how to live in a deeper faith. But before I say any more, would you just join me in a word of prayer as we open this up to, to, to God's presence and spirit. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for this, this space, this community of people who are here to, to wrestle with thoughts and ideas, Lord, to be engaged mentally and emotionally. And Lord, I pray that you do what I cannot do, Lord, that you, you move our hearts. You shape our hearts. And Father, interrupt. I ask, I plead, I beg, God, that you interrupt any agenda I have this morning that is not from you. Don't let a word come out of my mouth that doesn't honor you. That you would be the filter between what I have to say and whatever my intentions are, God, that you would be the filter so that we only hear and recognize and receive, Lord, and internalize the words that are from you. Lord, we invite your spirit this morning into this space. God, move us, shape us, and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. As I said, I don't have the passage up here. We have got a um, couple of the verses later on, but the whole passage is not going to be there. Um, that we are reading through the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the most famous and the most important sermon that has ever been given. Uh, Jesus gave this sermon, uh, and we uh, have hit a point in the sermon now where Jesus is, is delving into some specific uh, things. He's dealing with some specific issues surrounding religious living. And what I want to do is I want to read the whole passage. We're going to go through the whole passage together in just one one. One reading, and then we're going to circle back around and talk about a couple of specific points along the way and kind of look at the big theme that's being said here. But, but here is the passage, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of God. Be careful to not practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be heard or to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is, is, is doing, so that your, you, that your giving may be in secret." Then your father who sees what is, what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of the many words. There are many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Like as JP has said on, on you know, every sermon that he has given on the series so far, there's so much to unpack in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and we don't, have, we don't have the time. There's no way we're going to be able to unpack every detail in it. But our goal as we read through this, as we consider, is that I want to look at what is the heart of what Jesus is trying to say here? What's the theme that Jesus is trying to get at here? So as, as we, we break this passage down, we're going to be taking it into three steps. So first step, I'm going to look at the criticism that Jesus offers around um, acts of righteousness and the words that he gives. And, and then the second section is we're going to look about prayer. And he offers two different criticisms around prayer, certain types of prayers. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what is the example he gives us. And we're just going to look at that for a moment. Just look at what is it that Jesus wants us to do instead. Let's jump on in, and we're going to be pulling up right back into verse 1. We're going to look at verse 1, and this is what he says. He says, be careful to not practice your righteousness in front of others, 
to be seen by them. Now, this is a piece of wisdom. This is a piece of, of advice. It isn't so much a command. It's not like the 11th commandment he's offering us, like thou shalt not uh, practice your righteousness in front of others, right? And that's not what he's doing here. He's saying instead, be careful. Be careful when you do, right? And then he goes on and he says, don't give the way hypocrites do. They give and they tell the whole world what they're doing. Now, Jesus is referring to a multitude of different things here. On one hand, we, we know he is talking about, when he's talking about acts of righteousness, we know he is talking about generosity. We know he's talking about generosity, right? He's talking about giving to the temple, right? Honoring God that way, making sacrifices to God that way. And then he's also talking about like giving to the poor. But the, the, the term he uses is righteousness, and it's a much broader term. Um, it goes beyond just generosity, now, uh, we don't have time to go all the way into all the minutiae around this, but when he's talking about, when Jesus talks about righteousness here, he's talking about all these different things that we do to put us in a right standing before God. All these different habits or things that we might have, all these different things that mark perhaps what religious people ought to be doing. Right? It's just these, these behaviors that we would see in religious people. And then when he goes on, he says, um, don't practice. And then he goes on and talks about the hypocrites. And whenever you see the word hypocrites, he's like, don't, don't, don't practice your righteousness the way the hypocrites do. And that word hypocrite, he uses it throughout his teachings and is always referring to the religious leaders of his day. And so what he says is he says, don't practice your faith the way hypocrites do. Don't do it the way they do it. So what, what's the concern here? What's the concern that Jesus is, is giving here? Why is he giving us this warning? Why is he saying be careful? And it's very simple. His answer is very simple. When you practice righteous living in front of others, when you put your generosity on display for others to see, you open the door to be tempted to change your intentions in giving. Right? You open the door for others, to, to, for yourself, to, to now change why you might be giving. Why is that? Because what's going to happen is when your righteousness is on display, you're going to get praised. People will celebrate what they see, and all kinds of chemistry goes on in our brain in that process. Right? And what happens is we start to care too much about people's praise. We start to sell it. We start to want that too much. As we get praised, we want more praise. We want more of it. And it begins to change our intentions. So here's, here's a question for you. Would you be generous if no one ever knew? Would you be generous if, you know, not your spouse, not anyone who's receiving the gift, no one, no one would ever know? Would you choose to sacrifice your own well-being in order to elevate someone else, to, to raise someone else up, to make their life better if no one ever knew? Have you ever, have you ever noticed that people get meaner when they drive? <laughs> right? And if you haven't, you probably haven't driven much in Southern California, but people usually get meaner when they drive. Right? Maybe you know people in your life who are real sweethearts outside of the car, but once they get in a car, they become a monster. 
right? I, I knew this, uh, 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 I had this friend uh, in college, and she and I had one semester, we had a couple classes together, uh, and she was always a very nice person. She was like, real short, like five foot, just this little sweet girl, very, very nice, always said the nicest thing, was very generous about everything she said about people. And then this one day, we were going to go off campus to get lunch in between classes, and she said she would drive, and I don't remember the exact details, but we were driving, and this person in front of us slams on the brake doesn't turn on their blinker, makes this wide left turn in order to make like a right turn, and we almost hit them because, you know, all the circumstances. And so the girl driving, she slams on the brake, swerves out of the way, and she slams on the horn and rolls down the window and yells, idiot! And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, I've never seen her say anything close to that. She's not that kind of person that would say that or be that way. Um, but she's in alone, right? Like, like, people get meaner sometimes when they get, get behind the wheel, right? They get meaner, they get ruder, they get more selfish, they get more impatient when they, when they drive. Why? One main reason, one big reason for it is because you're anonymous. Because people don't know who you are. They'll rarely ever see your face. They rarely will ever get to any kind of response. What they see is just a black Chevy driving by. And so you could be rude and no one ever knows. And so in a weird way, driving shows us, how, how do we treat people if no one knows it's us? How do, how do we treat people if no one ever knew that we were the ones being nice or mean? Would you be generous if no one ever knew? Would you serve? Would you, would you sacrifice? Would you give? Would you, would you do these, uh, or even these religious rituals, these religious habits, would you do those things if no one ever knew? Would you do it? Um, would you be righteous? In Jesus' language, would you be righteous if no one ever knew? Now, why does that all matter? Right? It's really important that we get this. Um, why does that matter? Because why you give why you practice righteousness, why you do religious things at all, it matters. Why matters, right? To Jesus, you could be the most religious or righteous person in the world. You could be the most generous person in the world. But if you're doing it all for the wrong reasons, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong to Jesus. It you know, kind of makes me think of like, back in math class, right? You could, you could get the right answer, but like your work cited matter, like how you arrived at that conclusion mattered, right? So, so if you, you could have the right answer, but if how you got there was wrong, you're still missing the point. Like you haven't hit the mark. And to, to, to effect, Jesus is saying is this, to Jesus, why you practice your faith matters. It matters to Jesus. So then he goes on, right? He's been talking about uh, this righteous acts, and within that we know he's definitely talking about generosity, but now he kind of moves on a little bit, and now he starts to talk about prayer, right? He talks about prayer, and he gives these two separate criticisms around prayer. So the first one comes in verse 5 when he talks about hypocrites. He says this. This is in verse 5. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. So once again, he brings up this word hypocrite again, right? And I want to address, what is a hypocrite? 
What is a hypocrite? And it's a very simple definition. It's someone who says one thing, but then does something else. Who someone portrays that they do one thing, but do, does something completely different, right? They do not practice what they preach. Um, as I said earlier, right, that Jesus says hypocrites uh, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. And when he's always talking about it, he's just talking about these religious leaders. Specifically, he's, when he's talking about hypocrites, he's talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, were known to preach these high, strict, unrealistic, moral, godly standards. And they would pile them on people. And Jesus calls them out and says, hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You go on criticizing everything that everyone else does, that all these other people do. But look at your own faith. Look at how weak your own faith is in private. And then here, he specifically criticizes their prayers. He's talking about how they pray hypocritically. What does that mean? Uh, that means you pray only when you're seen. You pray only when you're seen. You pray only in public. It means in public, you look holy. You have all the right words you say that make you sound more holy, whatever that means, Right? But in private, you're spiritually dead. Your prayers are weak. Maybe you just don't even pray them at all. And to Jesus, this is what he says. He says, truly, those hypocrites, they will receive their reward in full. What's the reward? People's praise. The reward of those hypocritical prayers, it's people's praise. That's all they're ever going to get from it. And I don't know about you, but that sounds incredibly disappointing. If all I got from prayer was people's approval, I wouldn't pray. It'd be a weak reason to pray. It'd be a tragic reason. It'd be a sad reason to pray. If the only reason you pray is so that people hear you, and the only times you pray is that when people hear you, you're doing it wrong. You're praying wrong, right? You're doing it wrong. If prayer is about approval, people's approval, you're praying for the wrong reasons. And for that, that matters to Jesus. Then, then he goes on, right? So he's criticizing the, 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 um, the hypocritical prayer, and now he's going to he transition, and he talks about the, the prayers that pagans have. So this is in verse 7. This is what he says. And he says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. T two ideas here real quick. So one, you know, what is this? What is a pagan? Right? When he talks about pagans, what is he, what is he talking about? He's talking about the people who are practicing the Greco-Roman religion. And you think about the old pantheon of gods, like there were a bunch of names for Greeks and a bunch of names for the Romans, but they're the same kind of pantheon, this whole group of gods, right? He's talking about pagans are the people who are, are practicing that. It's really the people who are outside of the Jewish circle and to the, the audience of Jesus' day, it would have been the people practicing the Roman religion. At that time, that's, what, that's the main people he'd be addressing, right? And then he goes on, he says, they babble on. Don't, don't be like them who they just babble on. What, what does that mean? Right? To get it, you have to understand a little bit about the nature of their religion. Right? Why, do they, why do they pray to these gods? And I'll tell you this. It wasn't out of adoration. 
It wasn't out of love or affection or gratitude. They are trying to figure out, how do I live in the deeper faith of this God? That is not what is happening. They pray to get something. Their religion was propositional in nature. It was about, how do I get something from this God? The goal of this religious framework is to win the gods over, right? They would pray to Cupid, the god of love, if they're trying to find a new spouse. They would would pray to Mars, the god of war, if they're about to go to war. They would pray to Neptune when they would sail the seas, the the god of the seas. So they would offer these prayers, these gifts. They would have these rituals, these long, long prayers because it's adding, in their mind, it's adding to this bargaining power. They thought their prayers were payments. If I keep offering you more payments, then you've got to give me what I want. Now, I want to be careful here for a second. We don't have time to delve fully into this, but I want to clarify something that's very important here. Right, I want to clarify something that Jesus isn't saying. Because there's a couple of things that he says here that he, 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 it's not as simple, right? So one thing I want to make sure it's very, very clear, right? Jesus isn't saying, don't ask God for things. That is not what he is saying. In fact, in numerous other places, Jesus says, pray audaciously. Be bold. Ask your heavenly Father who loves you for what you need. Go to him. Speak boldly before him. He is not saying don't ask God for things. Likewise, he isn't really concerned about the quantity or the length of your prayers. That's not really a concern for him. right? He didn't really care about whether or not you prayed in public or you did good righteous deeds in public. That really wasn't the root of the concern for him. And I can say that because if you look at his own life, you can see it, right? Jesus gave some really long prayers. There are places where he prayed all night. Uh, Jesus prayed in public all the time. In fact, uh, the, the next few verses, he goes into the Lord's Prayer, which is in front of thousands of people. Uh, Jesus did a lot of good works in public. The vast majority of his ministry was in public. His criticisms uh, doesn't have to do with what or how people are doing things. It's not his criticism. The root of his criticism isn't what or how, but why. Why? Right? Why are you doing these things? Right? Hypocrites only pray in public. And the problem isn't that they pray in public. The problem is why they pray. What they do kind of points us, it educates us, it teaches us about why they do it. And that's what Jesus is concerned about. Hypocrites don't pray to be heard by God. Hypocrites pray to be heard by people. That's the root criticism here for the hypocrites, right? You're praying to be heard by people, not by God. Pagans don't have these long prayers and offer these great gifts in order to love God, in order to show their confidence in God, in order to trust God more. No. They want God to do things for them. They're gods to do things for them. It's a proposition. They're treating God like a vending machine. And my prayers are like my quarters. I'm going to keep putting them in, and then I'll push the button, and I'll get what I want. That's the thought. And to that, Jesus says, don't, don't pray like that. Don't, don't pray like that. Don't, don't come to God like a vending machine. Don't come to God acting like your many words are somehow going to buy his favor for you. Like sticking quarters in a vending machine. The quantity of your words 
won't win God over. So Jesus doesn't, just cares a lot less about how you pray, whether you're praying in public or not. What he cares about is why you pray. Why do you pray? Why do you give? Why do you practice your faith? Why do you come to church on Sundays? Why do you worship? Why do you sing on a Sunday morning? Why do you read your Bibles? Why? Hey, let's be real. This isn't odd or weird. This isn't even unique that Jesus is concerned about your why. Right? In any relationship, why you do the things that you do matters, perhaps more than what you do. While Jesus is talking about like religious stuff here, what Jesus is concerned about is the same thing that anyone in any relationship is concerned about. Real relationships value why people do what they do. Real relationships value that, right? Uh, imagine somebody wanted to marry you simply because of how you were going to make them look, right? Imagine if someone wanted to marry you and they acted really nice around, uh, around you and they were kind and loving only when other people were watching because they wanted to be perceived as a kind or caring person, right? Uh, imagine if somebody married you simply because they thought, well, you're loaded with cash, <laughs> I'm going to get all kinds of gifts from this. Right? Imagine somebody wanted to be your friend because of how you might elevate their social status. Imagine somebody wanted to be your friend because they thought you were going to get them things. You're going to give them stuff. And so they would be friends with you. They would spend time with you because they thought, well, this is how I get stuff from you. Imagine if somebody wanted to have kids for these reasons. That, you know what? A baby look, would look really good in my arms. <laughs> like a piece of accessory. Or maybe they look at a baby shower and they're like, wow, look at all those good gifts. I should have a baby. <laughs> right? That would be crazy. It would be nuts if somebody wanted to engage in relationships for a bad why. So what Jesus is teaching us here is that in our relationship, in our faith, our intentions matter. Our intentions matter. Our intentions matter behind our religious practices determine whether it is right or wrong or why. Our why, more than our what, matters. It matters, right? Why you do what you do matters. Anyone here ever study ethics, like been in an ethics class in like a college, college setting or a high school setting? Or I mean, some businesses I know will put on like ethics courses. Uh, when I was in my graduate program at Cal State Long Beach, I had this like kind of a class that I taught. It was like something between a class and a tutoring program, but uh, I had about 25 freshmen and I was teaching a philosophy class on ethics. And it was funny because all the students coming in, the freshman students coming in, they all thought that ethics, the course was just going to be about me telling them like all the things they should do and all the things they shouldn't do. <laughs> like they thought it was just going to be a list of do's and don'ts. Um, and they thought that's what ethics was. But actually what you do in ethics is you study, you're studying, you're studying theories. So you're trying to understand what makes something right or what makes something wrong. You're trying to create like a framework to understand and, and so that you might logically be able to make sense of, you know, these weird and, and complicated issues that come up. And so, you know, in ethics, there's all these different theories that have, that have come around over the years. So you think about like way back in, in, in uh, Greek times, right, in Roman times, way back, back when Jesus was around, right, there was, a, there was a really big thing called virtue theory. 
And so virtue theory, theory said that something was right or wrong uh, based on how it kind of carries you or moves you forward into to following certain virtues or having certain virtues, right? And so virtues would be like honesty or courage or compassion or generosity or self-control. So if you're doing things in life that make you more, that show that you have more self-control or it makes you more compassionate or more generous or more bold, right, then those are the right things to do, right? And of course, there's these criticisms. People are like, first of all, like, they can't even decide what, um, what virtues are good. None of the Greek philosophers could decide what virtue is good. Not to mention, it's weird. It's like, you might think about, well, how do I know whether or not that's making me more, you know, generous or not? Or, I mean, how do, what does it look like to be more generous in this situation, right? And so, it was, it was impractical. It wasn't, it wasn't easy to follow. And so, then they kind of started, it, theories of ethics evolved a little bit more. And we came up with a theory called consequentialism. It sounds complicated, but just take the word consequences. And the idea is that something is right or wrong based on the net effect, the net consequences of that action, right? And so if, so if you're going to do something, if the total amount of results of what you're doing is, is good and less bad, then it's a good thing to do. And of course, there's all kinds of criticisms around this. For one, it's impossible for us to know about all the consequences our actions are going to have. Like, I don't know. When I do something tomorrow, I have no idea what the ripple effect that's going to have. And then, you know, other issues like, it actually led, like back in Rome, it led to, to thinking it was okay to have these like arena games, like the Colosseum, where you could have one person die a brutal death, but it's okay because 40,000 people are entertained by it, right? Like the net effect almost seems like, oh, it's more good than bad. But, but here's the thing, right? Um, what you do in ethics is you come, up, you come up with these theories, you talk about them, and then you come up with these absurd scenarios in order to test them. So you can wrestle with them, you can think about it, you can engage with them, right? And this is when it gets really funny, especially with freshman students. And you would have these, these crazy ideas of like, well, you say stealing is wrong. Well, is it okay to steal food in order to feed a baby? Or, or if you think that um, murder is wrong, was it okay to murder something if it's going to save 100 people? If you had a time machine, would you go back in time and kill Adolf Hitler to stop the, all the death that's going to come from it? If you were on an inflatable, this is one of my favorite ones, but if you're on an inflatable boat and there's like one person too many and you're surrounded by like man-eating sharks and no one wants to volunteer to jump out, is it okay that we vote on who we're going to kick out, <laughs> who we're going to push out of the boat, right? So you have these absurd theories, right? So, so here, what's the point, right? The goal of ethics isn't to give you a list of what's right and what's wrong. The goal of ethics is to give you tools to give you an idea, to create a framework for you to think about, well, what is right and wrong? How do I live this out, right? And it gets complicated. Things get complicated, things get weird, right? But it's giving you tools that you might logically decide what is right and wrong. I'd argue that one of the main points of this entire sermon, the entire Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus is giving us tools, he is giving us resources on how to practice our faith. He is trying to help us think about and engage and understand how do we trust God? How do we really trust God with our life? How do we live out our best life faithfully trusting him? Because Jesus knows for thousands of years to come, that's going to look different constantly. All the different ways that we change and think, you know, different scenarios Christians are going to find themselves. We need tools to figure out how do we 
faithfully live out and trust God. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. Jesus doesn't want to give us a list of do's and don'ts. The entire Sermon on the Mountain, he's not just trying to tell you don't do this, but do this, and don't do this, and do this. It's not that. He's giving you a theory of religion. He's giving you a framework to know and to decide to understand this is how you not be a Christian. These are the things you shouldn't do, but these, these, this is how to be a Christian. In today's, in today's readings, we learn something. He says, your intentions matter. The message there is that your intentions matter. Why you do what you do matters to God. Perhaps more than what you do. You can check the boxes of religion, but if, you're, if your why is weak, the what you do is, is, is going to be weak. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, especially the Pharisees, they preach these rules and these laws, do this, don't do this, do this, do this, don't do that. And it's very black and white. But all this weight, they just keep piling on and piling on and piling on, crushing them and crushing their heart. And Jesus does is he gives us a framework to think of it differently. As many of you guys know, um, I've been uh, in, a, in a actively pursuing a franchise opportunity for many years. Three and a half years now. It's been a long time. It's a very brutal process. Um, I've been in tons and tons of interviews. I've written tons of essays. There's just been so much that has gone on in this process. Um, one thing I've learned in this is that the people, the brand that I'm with is they're very, very good at selecting people. Right? They're very strategic, they're very smart, they have very specific questions they ask, right? they're very thoughtful about all this. But in, in every single interview I've ever been in, there's always at least one question they ask me. It's the same, the same type of question every single time. They ask me, why? Why are you pursuing this? Why do you want to work in the restaurant? Why do you want to be a part of this brand? Why do you want this area? Why this restaurant? <laughs> they ask, why? Uh, a year ago, I was, in, I was in Atlanta for an interview, and they asked me this question again. They said, why? Why do, you, why, do you, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to be a part of this brand? And I wanted to res- respond kind of sarcastically and I'd be like, well, maybe you should read the notes from the last 15 interviews. <laughs> I've, I've, I've answered that a lot. Um, but I didn't. I didn't. Um, and then I read this, like, interesting article uh, by a pretty large publishing company, and the author of the article went and interviewed the person and the head of the selection process. And they, ask, and they asked her, they asked her, how do, how do you find talent? And, and she responds this way. She says, the single key question that we ask applicants over and over in interviews after interviews, that deceptively simple question is, why do you want to own this franchise restaurant? The reason why? Because in her own words, we can extract layers upon layers upon layers about the candidate. Why they want to do what they want to do and how that changes over a couple years says a lot about the kind of person they are. It says a lot about how serious they are. It says a lot about their work ethic. It says a lot about the kind of business owner they are, how strategic they are. A candidate's why shapes everything else they're going to do. Right? And so a compelling why will ultimately shape you. It will ultimately shape your how and your what. And now, just to be clear, this isn't unique. Lots of companies hire based on people's whys, right? Lots of companies train and try to help people to think about their whys, right? The, the author and speaker, Simon Sinek, wrote a whole book. It's called Start With Why. 
And he has this really famous TED Talk. It's a great TED Talk. It's a very famous TED Talk that he, he goes on and explains it. And one of the things that he talks about is this thing he calls the golden circle. And he gets these like three rings in the circle. And in the very center is uh, why. Why do you do what you do? And what he explains is that your why then ultimately shapes how you do it, which ultimately shapes what you actually do. And so he's, he's very convinced that he says that if you want to be successful, find your why. Really, really, really understand why you do what you do. If you want to be successful in your business, in your marriage, or whatever, dig really, really deep and define a why that compels you. And if you can't find one, then pick something else to do. <laughs> Go do something different. A part of the lesson that Jesus is teaching us here is exactly this is that if your why behind righteous, religious, holy living is bad, if it's superficial, if it's hypocritical, if it's broken or sinful, then what religious things you do won't matter. Jesus cares about why you pray about why you give, about why you go to church, about why you read your Bible, about why you serve, because it will determine the fruit of everything else you do. It has enormous power in shaping everything else you do. The, the sermon title today, is remind you, is How Not to Be a Christian. And I think because part of what Jesus does in all this is he paints us a, a picture of how not to be a Christian. Right? Be a Christian for all the wrong reasons. Do things Christians do for the wrong reasons. Pray, read the Bible, go to church, give to the church, give to the poor, fast, have, be involved in small groups, whatever else you want to add to that later. But do it because you want to please people. Do it because you just want to fit in. Do it because, you know what, it's on my, Sunday church is on my, on my calendar every single week, so that's why I do it. It's just a habit, it's just a rhythm I have, and, and I don't know why, it's not a good reason why, I just do it because... That's a great way of how not to be a Christian, how not to do these habits of faith. God will see right through it. And you're going to get the full reward of the superficial efforts. If you want superficial results, then put superficial efforts in it. If you pray simply because you want people to applaud you at how holy your prayer sounds, then that's all you're ever going to get from it. The real power in prayer, the real power in your study of Scripture, the real power of us being the church and the body of Jesus isn't in superficial efforts and superficial reasons. Jesus warns us, don't, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't, don't, don't be like the pagans. That's not how, how we do this well. And then he says this, he says, he says, instead, pray like this. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And there's so many interesting layers to this. There's so many. You could have a whole sermon on, or two sermons, or three sermons, I don't know, on the Lord's Prayer. There's so many layers, but I just want to pay attention to one very, very, very important detail. And that's in verse 9. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you might be thinking, well, it doesn't sound all that profound. <laughs> but you got to think about this. Prior to Jesus, the idea that, that God is our heavenly Father is a very weird, obscure idea. 
I mean, there's minor references. You can find some of that stuff in the Old Testament, but it is not this clear idea that this is a personal relationship with your maker. When you engage in prayer, you are engaging in a personal relationship with your maker. And Jesus says, open your prayers this way. Start your prayer thinking about it this way. Right? Because I think when you remember that you don't pray to some distant, bearded man in the sky when you remember that you are praying to your Father in heaven who shaped the universe and has formed you and has created you and has put you in the earth because he wants you there and he cares about you and he wants a relationship with you for all of eternity. And he invites you and he wants you to pray for him. It's going to shape the way you think about prayer. It's going to shape why you pray. It shapes why you want to pray. The way not to be a Christian is to be one or to say you are one for superficial reasons because you're trying to please people. On the other hand, to be a Christian, the way to be a good Christian is to do it for good reasons because you know this, this is how we get closer to our Heavenly Father. These, these, this is the path. This is how we build a deeper relationship. This is how we trust God with our lives. And we want the full fruit of that. And I want to be very clear, right? The, probably maybe the most important reason why you should be a Christian is because it's true. If you want to be a Christian and, and you're trying to think, why, why should I be a Christian? It's because it's, it's true, right? Uh, and if you're in this room and you're feeling like, well, I'm, I'm unconvinced of Christianity, I, I beg you, figure that out. Explore that, wrestle with those questions, engage with those questions, engage with God in an honest conversation about what you're feeling and the doubts you have, right? Uh, The most important reason that you should be a Christian is because it's true, but I would say equal to that is that we are Christians because we are pursuing a life of following Jesus because of the relationship we have with God and with Jesus through it right? We pray, we read our Bible, we go to church, we give generously, we take care of the poor, we fast, we spend time alone with God, we spend time in church after service setting up for VBS because that is the result, that is the overflow of a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, and we know that we get it, and that's why we do it. That's why it matters so much to us. So I ask, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? When is the last time you you really wrestled with that? And maybe you're not. Maybe you have a different, maybe, um, maybe I gotta ask you a different question. Why not? Why aren't you a Christian? Why do you choose to worship whatever you do? And, and, And don't be fooled. We all worship something. Some of us choose to worship success, money, stability, self-importance, people's approval, whatever it is. We all worship something. Why do you choose to worship what you do? Why do you put your faith in, what you, in whatever it is that you do? It's an incredibly important question. I would strongly argue that what you put your faith in is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. So knowing why you do Why you put your faith in that is perhaps the most important question you can answer. Don't take it lightly. It'll shape how, your how for everything else you do. It will shape what everything else you do. The more we engage with why we do what we do is going to empower what we do. 
I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I deeply believe that's true, and I know that's true in my, own, in my own journey. In college, I wrestled with my faith a lot. I wrestled with my faith a lot. I ripped it apart. I doubted out of all these. I second-guessed it, and there was the seasons in my life that I fully dismissed it. I remember walking home from one college class one night, and all together I remember thinking, I just don't believe in any of this. But the more I wrestled with it, the clearer it became to me. And in the end, I knew why I was a Christian. And the better I understood why, the deeper my faith became the stronger my faith became. Ultimately, it became more vibrant. It was far more important. So I ask again, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And don't forget it. Don't lose it. Remind yourself, why, do you, why are you here this morning? Why do you come to church? Why do you pray? Why do you read your Bibles? Why is that important to you? Why do you give? I'm a big fan of automated giving, right? Like, it's, it's great. It's very convenient. But there's sometimes there's, it's, it's powerful to also remind yourself about how much, like, I remember there's a season. My wife and I, we were trying to do all cash. And I remember we, you know, put all this cash out in front of us about what we had to spend in the month. And I remember taking, it was a 10%. We were, we were, we were short on cash. And I remember thinking, that's a lot. But it was very important because it also reminded me, I'm like, oh, yeah, but I trust you, God. Right? And it's important to remember why. Why do we do these things? It makes it more powerful. Jesus wants your prayers. He wants your righteous living. He wants those devote habits. He wants you pursuing holiness. Absolutely. But he shows us it's important that you're doing it for the right reasons. Today, this morning, maybe pause and reflect on what those reasons are. Let them empower you. Let them enable you to a deeper, more profound faith. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for today. God, I just ask that you speak your, your word, your wisdom into each of us. Let your words, God, not mine, nothing from me, God, but your words just continue to sink in and soak in and shape us that we might feel more in loved, more engaged, more excited to be in relationship with you, God. God, what an honor it is to be your children, to know that we are loved by you, that you care for us, and you have given us the responsibility of fulfilling a mission here on this earth. Lord, don't let us miss that. God, I pray for these people, Lord. I pray for this congregation, God. Empower us. Open doors in front of us. Let us be good ministers in this world. God, let us take our prayers seriously. Let us take our, our worship seriously. Let us take our commitment to reading Scripture seriously, God. Remind us why we do these things, Lord, so that it might inspire us, that it might move us, it might challenge us to deeper and deeper levels. Pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. 
And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.